Hello, I'm David Scott, the Editor-in-Chief of The Logic. And I'm Taylor Owen, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation and a Professor of Public Policy at McGill. And this is Big Tech, a podcast that explores a world reliant on tech, those creating it, and those trying to govern it. A couple of weeks ago, a Danish programmer started sending out these ominous tweets that sounded like they were lifted out of The Sopranos. He alleges that his company received a call from some, quote, mafiosos who said they'd burn down his store if he didn't pay up. And then he defiantly tweeted there was no chance in bloody hell he'd pay the ransom, writing, I will burn this house down myself before I let gangsters like that spin it for spoils. No, the tech world hasn't gotten that dangerous. The programmer in question is David Hansen, the co-founder of a company called Basecamp. And those mafiosos he's talking about? Well, that would be Apple. Here's the short version of this story. Basecamp just launched a premium email service called Hey. They wanted to put Hey on Apple's App Store, but they didn't want Apple to take their usual 30% cut. Apple rejected the app from the App Store, which they say is because the app didn't work properly. But Hansen says it's because Apple operates the App Store like, well, the mob would. If you want to be on their virtual shelves, you better pay up. Hansen may have a flair for the dramatic, but his tweets hold a kernel of truth. Apple's App Store is the only game in town, as any publisher will tell you. If you want iPhone users to use your app, you have to use the App Store. And to do that, you have to pay them their 30% cut. The EU just opened an antitrust investigation into the App Store, but this story is reflective of a broader issue. Many tech companies are starting to look a lot like monopolies. It's something Matt Stoller has been thinking about for a while now. Matt is the author of Goliath, the 100-year war between monopoly power and democracy. Goliath has a history of monopoly power in the United States, and Matt argues that big tech is just the latest iteration of the kinds of monopolies that have been dominating the American economy for more than a century. Taking on companies as big as Apple, Facebook, and Amazon can seem like an unwinnable fight. But Matt says we've been here before, and we can do it again. Matt Stoller, welcome to Big Tech. Hey, thanks for having me. So convince me that we are truly in an age of monopoly. Sure. So over the last 25 years, 75% of industries, according to a couple of economists in 2015, have become more concentrated. Uh, so you can see a crisis of concentration across our political economy and search engines. You know, Google has 95% of the market. Facebook has roughly two thirds of the social media market. You can see it in airlines, cable systems. Um, you can also see it in smaller markets. So I study, I, I write a newsletter called Big. And, you know, one of the I look at little markets, and one of the markets I saw was cheerleading. Cheerleading is controlled by a monopoly called Varsity Brands, which is owned by Bain Capital. Um, but, you know, plagiarism checking software, um, missiles and munitions. You'll find that in all sorts of different markets, if you just look at them on, a, on our micro foundations, you see, uh, you see concentration. I mean, you could look at a macro frame, you can look at a micro frame, and you just see concentration. And this has a lot of impacts. You can see uh, much lower productivity growth. Uh, than we used to have. You also have uh, less firm formation, 
um, venture capitalists talk about things called kill zones, where they just don't want to invest in spaces that are uh, either where a monopoly is or, or adjacent to a monopoly. We see regional inequality, which is sort of a historical uh, signpost of, of concentrated monopoly power. You have a billionaire president. So what you've seen is kind of the concentration of wealth and power in America, all over the world. Um, and the, the, the physical manifestation of this is monopoly. Okay, I, I, ex I suspect we'll, we'll keep going down this path and you'll convince me more as we go along. But um, with all the assaults on democracy today, what was it that uh, drew you to look at monopoly power? Yeah, so I got my start uh, thinking about this problem, I guess, during the financial crisis. In 2009, I was a staffer for a congressman who was on the banking committee. And I remember learning about the financial crisis and thinking, oh, this is a technical problem in the banking system. And it took a couple of years before I realized, and this may sound stupid, but I think a lot of us were stupid this way. It was like, oh, actually, um, this is a political crisis. Right, that it wasn't just a financial crisis. It wasn't some technical problem. It was a, a crisis of banks and corporations who are. It turns out they are not neutral technocratic institutions. They are political institutions. And how you structure banks and how you structure corporations is a political question. So when I started to do research into how we'd handle these problems in the past, I started to see that there was a tie between concentration in the marketplace which is to say autocracy, because a monopoly is a, is a mini dictatorship over a market, and the rise of actual autocracies. So this is pretty clear in the 1920s and 30s, you saw a uh, rise of concentration in the US, but also globally. And in the 1930s, these kind of went in very different ways. In the US, you had a resurrection of liberal democracy and an attack on financial concentration. Whereas in, um, in Germany, um, in Soviet Union, in Italy, you know, you saw a radical concentration either from the government side or from from the private industry side, and these are these are different political systems, and they are a result of of how we structure our markets as well as who we vote for. You place the moment now in this historical arc over the last hundred years, but it feels like the combination of the Clinton and Obama administration is sort of the the origin point of this current generation of monopoly power that you talk about. Can you can you outline a little bit why the economic regimes of those two presidencies really gave rise to this? Right. So so I would say there's two main starting points um, for the current roll-up of, con of concentrated private power. One of them is, is Clinton, you're right. Um, but the other one is Reagan, right? So what we saw really from the 30s uh, when we addressed the robber baron problem the, the last time, because we have had this crisis of concentration in the past, and we dealt with it through a sustained political attack on the power of concentrated finance. And uh, in the 1970s, a, a sort of a new generation of Democrats and Republicans emerged. These were people that didn't really think about corporate power as a political problem. Um, they just didn't think it was part of politics. And in the, in the 1980s, they uh, sort of took over the antitrust agencies, and what they started to do was roll up power domestically. Uh, you saw roll-ups of, of banks, and you saw the explosion of chain stores, um, and uh, just a, a whole media media consolidation. And this was really done under two, there were two basic theories, and one of them was the right-wing sort of libertarian ethos, that concentration is good because business leaders that, that have a lot of money and power know what they're doing, so we shouldn't interfere with them. And then the other side was the left-wing argument that monopolies are good for the consumer. So this was the consumer rights argument, really, from Ralph Nader, and that came from some socialists in the 1950s. And mm. so the Republicans and were, were the pro-monopolists, and then the Democrats became pro-monopolists, and so you didn't have a choice anymore. And the idea behind what Reagan and Clinton and Bush and Obama did 
because they said, well, look, the, the key to running a good society is to have fancy experts with PhDs or with a lot of money who know what they're doing and concentrate power and, and then let them, uh, and then let them kind of use that power to make our world better that you can see that embedded in Google's, um, mindset where they want to, you know, organize the world's information. That's very much a, I know what's good for you framework. It's an ideological framework. And that ideological framework sort of took over, which is why, you know, in the end of the Obama administration, you saw this great celebration of the uh, aristocratic Alexander Hamilton and what a genius he was, because that's the ideology that they believe in. So that's kind of where I draw it from. And now we're in this situation where we have massive accumulations of private power, both in Silicon Valley, but also kind of across our political economy. And the public is very unhappy all over the world. And so you have resurrection of older um, models of political organizing, sort of a soft authoritarianism, and then also this kind of left populism, which is where I come from, the sort of let's de decentralize private power. But all of it comes from this basic ideological redefinition of property rights that happened in the 80s and 90s. And that re redefinition of property rights said, we are going to separate out control from caretaking. So now you have these people that have control over these giant systems, but they don't actually have to take care of them. That's the problem of Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg has control over Facebook, but he doesn't actually have to deal with any of the negative problems that emerge from that control. And, 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 par and part of the separation was a, a regulatory framework that allowed them to function as platforms without liability, right? And, exactly. And that emerged in, like, I want to zero in on that Obama. Yeah, and that, and what we generally talk about the large tech monopolies really went from small companies at the beginning of the Obama administration with a lot of hype and hope around them to monopoly powers by the end of his presidency. Yeah, that's true. I would I would bring it back, I mean, to the 19, uh, late 1970s and 80s when this ideological shift really took place. So we had very aggressive regulation of our media systems, radio, television, the internet, all of these things were based on a media regulatory framework, a telecom framework that decentralized power and prioritized universal service. And then in the 1980s, we started stripping those away, right? And that's when you saw the rise of AM talk radio stations. That's when you saw the rise of, um, and then the 1990s with cable news and the giant media conglomerates emerged as a result of policy. There were a series of policy choices that enabled those. Then there was the antitrust suit against Microsoft, which prevented Microsoft from controlling the internet and created this explosion of innovation in the early 2000s. But in 2004, uh, the Supreme Court basically got rid of antitrust law in a, in a decision called Trinco. And so over the next, from basically 2003 or four until 2014, when Google, that was Google's first acquisition. So they bought a company called Applied Semantics to Facebook's last major acquisition, which is I think um, WhatsApp. You saw um, basically the the big four tech companies bought hundreds of companies without a single merger challenge, and we have mer laws that are against you know illegal monopolization and illegal mergers. We just didn't enforce them, and so that period was uh, the period in which the uh, it was sort of the end of the Bush administration, then most of the Obama administration, where they just believed that you know the Google guys are cool, they're going to do the right thing, they're building these amazing things, so why shouldn't they organize the world's information? And those were really the policy choices they made. Um, there was really no attempt to address Amazon's obvious predatory pricing with diapers.com. There were a whole bunch of things that the Obama administration did to enable this roll-up of power. Um, it was really continuity with going back to the Reagan administration. So let's, you mentioned the big four, and I'm wondering if we can actually fold it into the big five, including Microsoft. Would, sure. you, would you walk us through your arguments for how each of these companies 
function as monopolies? Sure. So, so I mean, it, they're each different, right? But the basic dynamic, um, let's put uh, Google and Facebook together, right? Because they both are, they're basically advertising companies. So Google and Facebook are ad companies. And what they do is they, um, they are communication networks. And, you know, traditionally what we've done with communication networks is we've regulated them as public utilities. And we've said, you know, and you're not allowed to discriminate. Like maybe we put rate regulations, say we're going to control what you can charge. But uh, we didn't do that with Google. And so what Google does, because they traffic in information, we've allowed them to manipulate us through advertising. Because advertising is just a third party paying to manipulate the flow of information. That is, that's just what it advertises. And we have, we've had a whole sort of argument about how to deal with that in the media space, but we never had that when we're talking about communication networks. And so Google... Although Larry Page and Sergey wrote about this in the late 90s. They were like, you can't run an ethical um, search engine with advertising. They just were straight up about it. This was before they got became billionaires. So, you know, we have communication networks uh, where they have an incentive to addict us, um, surveil us, and and just show us more advertising. And that, you know, we're going to have to address that because these communication networks are amazing, but they should serve us. We shouldn't serve them. So that's how these guys work. They're communication networks that finance themselves through advertising. Um, so now Amazon is uh, a whole series of basic infrastructure. They're kind of, they're trying to do something similar to what Google and Facebook are doing, except in lots of different spaces. So they put themselves into the underlying infrastructure of a market, and then they often will compete on top of the marketplace that they set up and they control, then they will also leverage that control of, um, of, a, of a marketplace into controlling another marketplace or another piece of infrastructure. So they have you know the retail space. They also do logistics and fulfillment. Uh, they have a studio. They have a whole bunch of brands that they produce of goods and services. And then they bundle it all together with Prime. They, of course, they have AWS. Uh, These are very complicated institution, but that's the, the gist is they're trying to become public utility style infrastructure that's not regulated. Um, then Microsoft, I haven't studied Microsoft as much, but you know, my, from what I understand, they're, they're essentially doing something similar, except in the business software realm. So, you know, they're going to kill Slack, right? By, by giving away Microsoft Teams or by underpricing Microsoft Teams. So they're, they're, um, they're essentially doing what they were doing in the 1990s, except a little bit more softer and uh, a little bit more nicely. Uh, and then Apple, I think uh, they're just you know your standard uh, monopoly. They have huge amounts of market power in, in the, you know, obviously with phones, but then uh, they can most aggressively exploit that, that power against their suppliers uh, and then also against people who have to sell apps through their app store. So, you know, you, you can buy a Samsung phone or you could buy an Apple phone or an Android phone versus an, an Apple phone. But if you make uh, apps, you basically uh, have to go through the, the Apple app store to get to your Apple customers. And you have to go through your, you know, the Google Play store to get to your Android customers, which means that you're dealing with two separate monopolies. So, Apple's a little bit more. They're just you know you're you're they're kind of like your ordinary bandits. They're just trying to like stick you up for extra fees. That's like more like a, a your standard telecom. Um, whereas Google like wants to transform mankind, which is super creepy. So I, I want to come back to Amazon in a second because because I know what their argument is. But before I do, you know what you're talking about with regards to Apple and the the phones is the walled garden uh, argument and right. Uh, would their their response, I assume, uh, to play devil's advocate here, would be, look, 
at the end of the day, the consumer still has choice. So when you talk about monopoly, how does that apply when I, as a customer, can go into the Google walled garden or the Apple walled garden or the Samsung walled, well, the Android operating system walled garden? Um, what is it that specifically Apple is doing that nobody else can compete with that, that creates a, a, a monopoly? Well, from the point of a consumer, I mean, it's it's just hard to move off of the Apple ecosystem. So there's a there's a there's high switching costs. There's not a you know you can go to Google's ecosystem, right, and that's it. So you're there's there's a lot of concentration. Um, even though you know you have a you have a choice, you you really only have one other choice. But but again, as I said with app makers, right? If you if you make an app, right, you have to go through Apple's. Uh, app store you don't have a choice right because you're ha so a bunch of your customers are gonna just be apple owners um, so they're then they're not going to switch to samsung so they can use your app like you don't have a choice so and and with in regards to amazon their argument would be look offline we're competing against walmart we're competing against target we're competing against alibaba we only have one percent of the global market share of retail and this delineation between online and offline is a false narrative uh, how would you counter that 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 gets to like the underlying tension in in whenever you're doing antitrust work which is you know how do you define the market so i think uh reed hastings of netflix said you know we're competing against sleep right you can always you know mark zuckerberg when i think one of the he had a note with him when he testified before congress and he said oh we compete against you know all these other things including free time so it's like you can always define your market as whatever whatever it might be, but like one way to define a market is is a is it substitutable? Could you find an easily substitutable good? And I think with with Amazon, you know, what you'd probably find is that at least for online retail, they're they're uh, they really it really is a separate market than actually going to the store. It, it, you, there are sometimes some substitutes, but it's not easily substitutable. And then for for a lot of products that Amazon sells, they probably are a monopoly in terms of, of consumer facing. But more importantly, if you are a uh, seller, right? If you are selling through Amazon, there are just a lot of companies and their firms and people that are highly dependent on Amazon. So, you know, and they will go out of business without Amazon. So in, in some ways, it's a little bit like saying, well, you know, that railroad that goes through this one narrow valley that you have to take to get to market. Well, that's not a monopoly because there are other railroads in the country. Well, yeah, maybe there are, but it doesn't matter if you need that particular railroad to get where you're going. And I would say that's what Amazon is like in a lot of the sectors that it deals with. So let's say I accept your premise. Um, these are monopolies. Then the next question is, well, the next counter would be, well, monopolies aren't just chosen. They they come out of markets, uh, as we've discussed. And I guess I'm trying to understand the root causes of the current monopolies that you speak of. You know, there was a long time there, roughly 20 years or so, when Jeff Bezos was selling shareholders on a myth, right? That that if you invest in the long term, we will one day become profitable. But we weren't, they weren't generating revenue. And then others have kind of taken on the same or similar type of approach. I think of Uber and then ultimately perhaps to its downfall, WeWork. Um, but what role do markets and institutional investors and large movers of, of money play in helping to incentivize this kind of company? So the book that I wrote is 
is uh, called Goliath, the Hundred Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. And we had a very similar dynamic in the 19 uh, teens and 20s and 30s, where we had what was called the anti-chain store movement, which was which was largely a movement that was a focused on the A&P supermarket, which was kind of the Amazon or Walmart of its day. And what A&P would do is they would, uh, because they had a lower cost of capital, which is what you're talking about with Amazon, they could then go into an area with an independent store and they could underprice them. They could sell goods for less than they were worth that were popular to kill independent store owners. And then uh, they would dominate that market. They weren't doing a consumer dominance play. They were they were actually crushing the uh, suppliers. So it's very similar to the Amazon or Walmart problem. So they were a buying monopoly. So basically what that is, and it's the same problem we have today, is that your ability to succeed in the marketplace is not based on whether you deliver good products or services. It's based on your, your closeness to Wall Street. What is your cost of capital? And it's also fundamentally uh, disruptive because the premise of a a successful market economy is that if you take a bunch of inputs and put them together into a new output, that that output should be worth more than the inputs. That's what creates wealth. And we do this through the pricing system, right? If you're taking a bunch of inputs and you're adding them together and then you're selling them for less than what those inputs are worth, that's net value destructive. And that's what Amazon was doing um, that's what ANP was doing. It's what WeWork was doing. It's what um, Uber was doing. So it's, it's a whole bunch of. That's what chain stores do. And what they're doing is they're not investing in in a making better products or services. They're engaging in what's called predatory pricing to acquire market power, right? And though there were laws against predatory pricing, partially because of the ANP case, and these laws lasted until the mid 1970s when Democrats got rid of them. And then you saw the roll-up of power in the hands of chain stores and in the hands eventually of institutions like Amazon. So so the, now if you can distinguish between something like Amazon, which actually succeeded at acquiring market power, and something like WeWork or Uber, which didn't because it was like financed by grifter idiots who then just started engaging in self-dealing. But basically predatory pricing is a form of counterfeit capitalism, right? You're not actually, you know, you're not actually creating wealth. You're destroying wealth to acquire market power. So, you know, the, the WeWork example is, is a good one in that every VC that I have spoken to in the past three or four months have all said the same thing, which is we are now looking for profitability, not growth. Uh, we've changed our tune. And so the follow-up question is, do you need regulatory or policy changes, or is the market, in fact, taking care of this on its own? I'm not, so so be careful. Like, I'm not saying that just we need profitability. What I'm saying is that you need, uh, profit should come from making better products or services, right? Because you can you can make money engaged in pre engaging in predatory pricing. Amazon has made a lot of money engaging in predatory pricing, but they haven't necessarily created that much wealth. They've transferred wealth to themselves by exploiting market power. Um, so, so the the key is that is that you you know it's it's how we structure markets, and do we structure markets so that the people that are closest to Wall Street or closest to concentrated capital get market power, or do we structure markets that are so that they're open and so that people can come in and profit by making better goods and services. I mean, I feel like that's partly how where the EU is coming at this in a slightly different direction, and and probably Canada to a certain degree too, where we can't 
really break up these companies, but we can change their behavior or affect their behavior in our markets, right? They're just whiny. The Europeans are just whiny about everything and they don't ever do anything. It's really annoying. So, so I'm sorry, but like- No, I no, 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 tell me more. I want to hear more about the path they're going down in this. Well, like Vestager, you know, Vestager has been working on this. They've been working on this forever and they keep saying, oh, you know, we need them to behave. And then they do their like annoying, this is what the Europeans always do. They always like- flex their muscles and and come out with like meager sort of regulatory policies or fines. And then they talk about European champions and then they do their their like what are all their bureaucratic nonsense, like their trilogs, but they never actually do anything that, that matters, right? Google is still dominant. Facebook is still dominant. And like where, like show me, show me what they've done to decentralize power. If you contrast that with say Russia, okay? Now Russia is definitely not, like, you know, they're not A-OK in my book in general. But, you know, what the, the federal cartel service in Russia did, they, they, had the, they had the Android case, which was the same case that the Europeans had. And they just didn't take five years on it. They just said, no, you can't tie Android to search. And by the way, everybody who has an Android phone who was defaulted into Google search, you have to text them and tell them that they have this other choice, Yandex. And... Uh, you know, you got to do it today. And then Google did it. And now there's a competitive search market in Russia. And it's the only competitive search market in the world, really, or one of the few where Google is a competitor. And like, you, I'm sorry, but you can't tell me that the Europeans who had the same, basically the same case at the same time have been any good when they, you know, Google is still dominant. They, the, the Europeans like make a lot of noise, but until I see some real action, I'm not convinced that it means anything. I was going to ask you a question about journalism or information flows in society and the effect of these monopolistic uh, entities, but throwing in Russia and having non-monopolistic entities doesn't give me much confidence in 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 one of the arguments of your book, which is uh, that they're controlling the flow of information in our society. Well, I'm not I, making I, an argument that we should be like Russia. I'm just saying that I'm comparing... Like the fact that Europe is doing worse than an authoritarian state on this stuff, shush, I'm just like, let's let's be honest about how we're doing, and it ain't great right now. Well, in the book you write, book publishing and distribution, media financed by advertising and social media are how we communicate ideas with one another, and all three channels are increasingly in the hands of, of monopolists. Right. Uh, that doesn't appear to be the case in Russia. Uh, of course, there's other challenges there. Um, <laughs> but So I'll bring it back to the the U.S. example or the North American example, what does uh, this this information flow being in the hands of a select few mean for democracy? Well, I think it means bad things, right? I mean, we have, um, you know, Amazon controls in many ways the book market and they can structure the flow of ideas and do structure the flow of ideas. Uh, I think, you know, Google and Facebook both control the flow of news, the flow of information, how we interact with one another. So, you know, in uh, Brazil before, you know, there, you've got people who, because of the YouTube uh, engagement algorithm, believe that, you know, Zika comes from doctors, right? You know, you have the 2000 of America's 3000 counties now have no daily newspaper because Google and Facebook have redirected the flow of advertising that used to go to publishers to themselves. Um, so, and this is, this is true. This is a, a crisis all over the world. So, it's not like, and, and by the way, this is not necessary. We don't have to do this. This isn't like some inevitable 
um, consequence of anything. Like if you look at a different market structure, say the podcast industry, you can see that we can have a scaled market where you have a whole bunch of different diverse voices and you have different advertising networks and it can work. Right. And, and so, and that's just a question of, of market structure and market rules. So we, we didn't have to destroy the internet. We don't have to destroy our newspapers and we can get back to a much more open and vibrant market structure for information. We just have to make the choice to do that. All right. On, on that moderately upbeat note, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and The Logic and produced by Antica Productions. Make sure you subscribe to Big Tech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.